Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I think the active investors, it makes sense for them to keep going, just underwriting for the new reality. So the building you're buying for 30 million today might have been one that would have bought for 33 million in January, but you're now paying less. So you're, you're keeping that in mind and keeping an eye on rent growth because what's really bailing out multifamily at this point, what's making us such a strong asset class is our rent growth is stunning. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, this is Ryan Stieg, one of the co-founders of Left Field Investors, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm very pleased today to have Neil Bawa with us. He is known as the mad scientist of multifamily and is the president and CEO of Grow Capitus Investments, a firm specializing in, in apartment buildings, student housing, and self-storage properties in high-quality markets across the country. He's also the founder of a real estate community with over 30,000 members, which is amazing. So, Neil, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Jim. Very excited to be here. Excellent. And the way we always start is just love to hear your journey, how you got into real estate, how you got into syndication, and just kind of how your financial journey got you to where you are right now. Sure. I'm a technologist. I'm a geek. I'm a nerd, a data scientist by profession, computer science degree. Like lots of people that have come in from India, I came to the U.S., you know, was part of the technology field and then started to get burned out because each year I was working harder and harder, getting higher and higher salaries. Uh, you know, because I live in Taxifornia, I was paying, you know, 50% of my salary to the man and, you know, went and complained to my boss who directed me to real estate as the only way to build wealth as opposed to just building income. So, you know, I went from wanting to build an income to wanting to build real estate, wanting to build wealth and real estate was the path that I selected in 2007. And I continued along that path until 2013. So the first six years, just by myself, and during that journey, I learned how to apply my data science abilities, my statistical analysis abilities, and became known as the mad scientist of multifamily. Even before I was taking investor money, 
and they started calling me out to conferences. So that's a longer journey, but basically I'm an example of the application of statistical analysis and technology to commercial real estate. That's great. I love how you said you started out trying to build income and you changed to building wealth. And was taxes the light bulb that kind of that kind of sent you on that journey along with the with the guy you worked with? Or talk a little bit more about how you figured out real estate was the key to building wealth. Right. So I think that taxes are one of the two key parts of switching from building income to building wealth. When you're building income and you're chasing these ever higher salaries, I was making, you know, three hundred thousand dollars a year the fear goes up and up that one day your company is simply going to replace you with three people at a hundred grand each right now that didn't happen for me i stayed at that company from 1999 all the way to 2013 when we sold the, the company and i was a partner there but the fear is always there the higher your tech salary goes the more fearful you become that someone you know some young hotshot is going to replace you at a third of the salary and so when you're chasing income what you realize is you're you're in the rat race, you are a rat, and as you go, the, the speed at which you're running is increasing. So your stress level is going completely crazy. Your health is going completely ballistic. Your weight is ballooning. And all of this happens to millions of Americans in white collar you know, jobs. And now I'm the exact opposite. I do Pilates three times a week, yoga seven times a week. I walk an hour a day. I have a quality of life that is astonishingly high and it's there because I'm chasing wealth and part of wealth is not money. Part of wealth is control of time. So I think that most people that are listening, I know a lot of you, if you're not wealthy, that the first thing you want to do is get wealthy, but have a vision and your vision needs to be that I have wealth of time. I have wealth of health and I have wealth in the bank. And that's what I've been chasing for all these years. So really, really happy to get to this point, you know, and, and I've been able to do some amazing things with it. For example, I've been able to make myself carbon net neutral or net neutral in terms of my carbon footprint. And now I'm engaged in making my entire company carbon net neutral. I'd like to just talk about that for a second, if you don't mind. How do you make yourself carbon net neutral? That's fantastic. So I'm a data scientist, so I research everything, right? I will read articles, I'll read white papers. So I became obsessed with this idea of, you know, becoming carbon net neutral. So the first thing I did was did the research. The study that I liked was from MIT, and it basically says a typical American uses five or creates five times the carbon that the typical person in the world does. So already we're, we're basically, you know, hogs when it comes to this sort of thing. And the, the total amount of carbon that an average American produces is 44,000 pounds of carbon is released into the atmosphere through one American. Then I started looking at myself and saying, am I the typical American? So I went to websites, plugged in the size of my house, how many international and national vacations I take, because, you know, flying is, a, is very polluting. You know, I plugged in my SUV and came to the unfortunate conclusion that not only was I not a typical American, which are already 5x the rest of the people on this world in terms of carbon, I was 50% higher. So I was polluting seven and a half times compared to any other person on this planet, the average person on the planet. And I was like, wow, this is really, really bad. To fix this problem, you have to start with self. Don't talk about what the politicians are not doing. Don't talk about all this climate change versus non-climate change bickering. 
start with yourself. So initially I started with solar panels. So I installed 12, then I installed, you know, a total of 29. But I'm a mathematician, right? So I, when I did the math, it was still nowhere close to the footprint. So I came to the conclusion that I had to wipe out that 44,000 pounds plus the 50%. So, so 66,000 pounds a year of carbon for my entire lifetime, which I estimated at 75 years. Did the math, looked at solar panels, realized I would have to rob a bank and started looking at other solutions. And the solution was really simple. For a average American, if you plant 919 trees, you wiped out your entire lifetime's carbon footprint. 919 trees. In my case, it was 1,379 trees because I was a mega polluter, right? Because I have the big fat SUV and the big fat house and the big fat vacations. So I needed 50% more. So I became, I was like, where, how can I plant 1,379 trees and what does it cost? And I looked at Chinese, you know, for non-profs. I looked at Brazilian non-profs. I looked at Mexican non-profs. I looked at in India. I looked at everywhere. And then I found the answer here in the United States. There is a organization here that works with the Forest Service. And this organization is called One Tree Planted. And all I had to do was donate $1,379 to them. And I became carbon net neutral. So 1,379 trees were planted in my name in British Columbia. The nice thing about this is you can plant them in China, you can plant them in the Sahara. We share one biosphere. The air moves from here to China, to India, back to the US every few months. So it's one biosphere. So now there's 1,379 trees growing somewhere in British Columbia in my name, and I'm carbon net neutral. And so my company has an open offer to all of our employees. They're not mega polluters like me. They don't have the they, they probably don't have the big fat SUV and the big fat house. So they need to basically just knock off 919 trees or plant them. We pay for half of that. So any American employee of ours can pay $460 to this company, the one tree planted. We pay the other 460 and they become carbon net neutral for life. All of our Filipino employees only pay $92. Why? Because Filipinos have a much lower carbon footprint than Americans do. So they pay $92, we pay $92, they become carbon neutral. So as employees come, employers come, uh, employees come into our company, we let them know about this initiative, right? I know it's a lot of trees and you can't really say, let's have 7 billion people and plant, you know, you know 200 trees for each of them. We don't have the space in the, in the world to do this. But luckily we have this space in the world to do this for a few hundred million people. And I'm one of them. That's phenomenal. I love that. I'm going to check out One Tree Planted when I'm done here because that's just a really neat thing. And I know that's not why we're here today to talk about uh, carbon neutral, but man, that's a fantastic way to open up to this podcast. So I'd like to pivot now to the real estate trend accelerator. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that you, you have 10 trends. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about all 10. We're going to talk about a couple. But can you start by generally talking about, in general, how you came up with these trends and then also about COVID and why COVID is going to accelerate many of the trends that, that were already starting pre-COVID? Mm -hmm. I think what people don't understand is that the nature of humanity is such that there are full stop events in our lifetimes that affect us all, right? We'd like to think that 9-11 is an affected every person on this planet. It really wasn't. It made a significant difference to 200, 300 million Americans and also made a significant difference to the people in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it was truly not a world event at all. 
the last world event that affected every person on this planet or almost every person was World War II and then COVID. COVID affected more people than World War II. There were hundreds of millions of people that didn't participate in World War II. There was no one on this planet that didn't participate in this COVID disaster. So when an event like this occurs, it's not a turn on, turn off thing. It changes us. It changes our mentality. It creates new fears. It creates new initiatives. It changes society. So COVID is the truest of the true black swan events that we've ever had, right? Once we understand that, the question we ask ourselves is, so what are the long-term impacts of COVID? Everybody at this point knows all the short-term impacts of COVID, so there's no point in talking about it. Let's just talk about what does this do to our economy? What does it do to real estate? What does it do to business? And list all of the long-term impacts. I'm more interested in those because the short-term impact obviously was a million, 30,000 people died in the United States, 10 million people died worldwide. We know that. It's a horrible tragedy. But the long-term impact is much greater because it's going to have an impact on 7 billion people on an ongoing basis. So when we track that, the first one that comes to mind is hybrid homes or hybrid uh, work. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. That's a huge impact in the way that we live and the way that we work. And the second one is healthy homes. That is a massive, massive change in the way that we are going to be building homes in the U.S. and worldwide for the next you know, 50 to 100 years until we get another pandemic. So those two are very, very key examples. And then, of course, interest rates and inflation currently are byproducts of COVID. There's zero chance at this point that we would have had 8.5% inflation in the U.S. if COVID hadn't happened. Zero chance. So inflation, interest rates, and all the things that come because of that, the impact on prices for single family and multifamily are also byproducts of COVID. So let's start with hybrid work then. People are starting to slowly go back to the office, but it seems like even the people that are going back have options for part-time and and all that. So how is hybrid work going to change? Well, let me start with this. Looking at the statistics from the last three months, the attempts made by companies to bring people back full-time into the offices have been a complete and unmitigated disaster, okay? I follow this company that, you know, when you go into a corporate office, you go into a building, you have this key card and you swipe that, right? You swipe it and then you enter Uh the building, it unlocks. Imagine how much data those companies must have, the companies that, you know, do the swiping thing. So there's one such company that I follow their data, and according to them, less than 50% of key swipes compared to February 2020. That's data from this month. You can't say, oh, well, the data is a year old. Things have changed now. No, data from May 2022 suggests that there's less than half the key swipes compared to February 2020. So there's no excuses. It's clear now that the nature of work has changed and it's not going to switch back because if it was going to switch back, it would have done so already right? More than two years have passed since COVID started. So because of this, fundamentally, there's a shift. There's a power shift that is happening. And it didn't start with COVID. So COVID isn't creating trends. It's accelerating certain trends and slowing other trends down. So there was already a massive, massive impact with people moving out of California, moving out to places like Phoenix, 
to Austin, to Boise, and even to Seattle, though that slowed before COVID. So people were already moving out of California, but California still had population growth because firstly, some people were moving in. So they were replacing some of the people moving out and it had immigration from other countries. Well, once the Trump administration came in, immigration to the US has slowed to a tiny amount. You know, don't, I know that we've got a, a real problem with the wall on the Southern border, but overall, when you look at immigration numbers, they're very low. So now for the first time, California is losing population. Nobody would ever think that that would happen. The San Francisco Bay Area is losing population. The city of San Francisco lost 15,000 people last year. So hybrid work is changing the way we work. And it's also changing the radius that cities have. A lot of people are like, so does this mean that everybody's gonna go live in the boonies, Neil? No, they're not, no. People still wanna live near cities. They have culture, they have beauty, they have events. They still wanna live there, but the radius is changing. So if the radius for the San Francisco Bay Area was, well, you, I can go as far as you know, Livermore, well, now it's Tracy and Modesto and beyond. That radius has expanded by 30 or 40 miles. And that changes the way real estate is done, right? And then, of course, there's people who are leaving all of these places. So New York is losing population. So is California. Connecticut. Is, Connecticut. I mean, I think there's going to be three people left in Connecticut in the next 10 years, <laughs> right? And those yeah. three will be thinking about leaving. It's terrible to see this, right? Because it's, it's bad news overall for the country, but it's good news for the Southwest. The southwest of the United States, I call it the crooked smile, is getting an enormous one-time hundred-year benefit from COVID. So the crooked smile starts in Idaho, and then right below Idaho is Utah, and then below Utah and next to Utah is Nevada, and then below that is Arizona, and then it sort of goes across to Texas, and then you've got Georgia, Tennessee, and then it goes down to Florida, and then up to North and South Carolina. I probably missed out a state or two in there, but it's a crooked smile, right? So imagine the map of the US and you see a crooked smile across it. These states are winning extraordinary numbers of people from the other states. And their real estate economies have become very bullish and now have gotten to the level of being bubbly. Like Boise, for example, is the most overvalued city in the US. And three years ago, if I said Boise, Idaho would be the most overvalued city in the US, You'd laugh at me, you'd laugh at me, but it is by far, it's more overvalued than any other city in America because it's, it's you know, if you look at any statistical analysis, everyone mentions Boise as the most overvalued, everyone. It's so overvalued. All of that because of COVID, all of that because of hybrid work. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at Tribe Vest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. Tribe Vest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, 
Head on over to TryVest.com today. Can you talk about what overvalued means? Because when I think of overvalued, I think that it's going to come plummeting back. But there still is a housing shortage. People are still moving to places like Boise and Phoenix. So what, what does overvalued mean for an investor? And how should we be dealing with properties or syndications that we own in those cities or ones that we're evaluating in those cities? Makes a lot of sense. So, you you know, let me define that. So firstly, how do economists tell if a city is overvalued, right, from a real estate perspective? Well, they look at the incomes of the people that live there, look at their median incomes, and then they basically say, okay, here's the average home price or median home price. And what percentage of the median home income of the people that live here is needed to pay for the median you know, home, it should be about 30% or 33%, right? If it starts to go up to 40%, well, that property, that area is overvalued because people are really pushing to buy homes. If it goes to 50%, it's horrendously overvalued, right? So at, and at some point, you know, it's going to revert to the mean. Boise currently is 72% overvalued, right? It's, it's so way beyond what the people there can afford to pay for it that the only reason the real estate sales even happen in Boise is because there's this continuous inflow of Californians who come in and 1031 their homes in California and they they basically bid up that market it's you know they're coming in from other states too they're coming in from Washington but California is kind of the the key problem there so in that example Phoenix is the same thing Californians coming in and bidding up the local market now the key question is does this mean that overvalued you know markets must crash the answer is no. Most overvalued markets do not crash. The common scenario actually is often a 5 to 10% decline. So we could see a 5 to 10% decline in some of these markets in the single family realm. I'll tell you what happens to the multifamily side because it's different. So in the single family realm, you could easily see a 5 to 10% price correction in Boise and Phoenix, in Austin, and several other you know, uh, markets like Miami. So especially as interest rates go up. The second scenario, which is also pretty common, is that the city adjusts and salaries increase. So when salaries go up in that city, let's say they start going up at 6% because, you know, Boise's got humongous home price growth, 20%, 25% a year. So if their salaries go up by 6% a year, you might say, that doesn't work, Neil. How does 20% equate with 6%? Well, it does. Let me explain. If a person's salary goes up by 6% and they were previously putting a third of that salary towards rent, okay? So Jim's salary is $100,000. He was putting 33, so that's a third of it, towards housing. Now when his salary goes up by 6%, it goes up from 100 to 106. Well, that's 6% of his salary, not 6% of the real estate. So now, if he takes that entire 6000 and applies it towards real estate, he can actually afford real estate going up 12 13 even 14%. Because your, your real estate is only a portion of your salary. Your rent or your mortgage payment is only a portion. So when your entire salary goes up, if you start applying all of it or most of it towards rent, some of it goes towards food because food's going up. So if it only goes towards food, gas, and real estate, a 6% increase in salary, you can often afford 12% more in real estate. So the city starts to adjust, its salaries go up, people get used to paying more of their income towards real estate. And so what all that happens is 
that the city's boom of real estate slows down, deflates, or often plateaus. And so I'm not expecting, I'm expecting Boise, Idaho to go down by 5 to 10%, but Phoenix, because it has so much in-migration, might just plateau for a while. Home prices might plateau. Now, on the multifamily side, completely different things happen, but that's, you know, initial answer to your question. Okay. Well, talk a little bit about multifamily because that's what a lot of us are investing in. So what, what's so different about multifamily in that scenario? So the short answer is this. When home prices get completely out of whack, I'll use Phoenix as an example, right? So home prices are going up 20, 25% a year. Incomes in Phoenix are going up 5% a year. So even with my example, they're out of whack. So what happens? Well, more and more people that were expecting to be living in single family homes that were going to own single family homes or townhomes now are renters. They've lost the race. Home prices went past their capability to catch up. So that race is lost. That train's left the station. And now these people though, they have these desires and these visions of living in a beautiful property. Well, so what happens is based on their income, they end up going in a couple different directions. Number one, they rent a single family property, but once again, single family you know, properties are way more expensive. The rents have also gone through the roof. So their next option is to rent an apartment. The ones that can afford to do it, rent class A apartments. The ones that can't will go to refurbished, rehabbed, nicer looking class B and class C apartments. And then the newest group that they're going to, which is one of the key accelerators of COVID is if they can afford it, they're not going to apartments. They're not going to single family. They're going to build to rent communities. A BTR community is a horizontal multifamily product that has single family homes or these days more often townhomes for rental. So you're in a community of 250 homes and each home is either a townhome or a single family. It's very tiny, like 1,000 square feet, so postage stamp size, single family, and they're going there. So now they've got one extra choice compared to five years ago because BTR didn't really exist five or six years ago as an institutional asset class. So BTR, they're going to apartments. So essentially what is happening is that this spike in home prices has actually created more tenants in the marketplace, so much so that this year multifamily has a record occupancy. Now it's, it's coming down a little bit in April and May, but in the Q1 of this year, the occupancy of multifamily in the United States was the highest all, in all time since we've been measuring it. And you might say, wow, that's crazy. How can people be buying all these homes? There's a frenzy of it, but still we have so many people in our multifamilies. That's because as prices go up, we're creating more renters and we're creating more lifelong renters. So this is actually good news for multifamily, not beyond a certain point because you don't, you don't, you don't want the housing market to crash. You want it to plateau. So the best you know, outcome for multifamily is that housing prices slowly increase by four, five, 6%. They don't plateau and they don't go downwards because if they go downwards, then market sentiment changes and that usually affects rents. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned healthy homes. Can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, with COVID, people have become more aware of the air in their house, the water in their house. And so if you look at apartments, the way we built them in the US, we're not building them any differently from the 1980s or the 70s. The ceilings are one foot higher. 
And now we build them, all of the new apartments in the US are built with granite countertops instead of laminate. But other than that, it's the same damn apartment. The technology hasn't changed one bit. But today, almost all of the new Class A product has some aspect of healthy homes. So there's a company called Delos, D-E-L-O-S. I'm doing a webinar on this, by the way, on prop tech and how it's changing real estate forever. That webinar is going to be on my website, multifamilyu.com. I think about five, 6,000 people will attend that. But bottom line is companies like Delos are disrupting real estate by making sure that there is an aspect of healthy homes when you're building apartments, when you're building single family homes, when you're building built to rent. So for example, I'm building thousands of built to rent units right now. 100% of them are healthy homes. Now you might say, whoa, that's a lot. I mean, most of new apartments that have been built this year don't have healthy homes. The answer is yes, but I have to sell my properties five years from now, six years from now, seven years from now. So I have to basically see the change that is coming today and I have to be ready to adapt to it when I sell my property five, six, seven years in the future. And I can tell you in seven years in the future, it will be a disadvantage to sell a property that is not a healthy home, that doesn't filter the air, that doesn't filter the water, that doesn't deionize, that doesn't give you a dashboard next to your house on an iPad. All of this stuff is happening in real time. It's a huge change because this is the first change in the way apartments and homes are built in the US since I think the 50s, right? So it's a big deal and we're seeing it roll across the, the class A first. And you might say, yeah, but I'm in the class C realm, right? I buy class C homes, this doesn't matter to me. Of course it matters to you. How do you think class C came about? All of the class C properties that you're buying today were class A properties in the 80s. When they were built, they were class A. Class A becomes class B 20 years later, and then becomes class C about 35 years later. So if you look at the 80s, about 35 years have passed, so these are now class C properties. So as time goes on, if all of the class A stock is going to be healthy homes, and some of the class B stock is going to be healthy homes, how do you think that's gonna affect class C, right? It becomes difficult to compete. And I think that we are seeing today in class C, it's harder for class C buildings that are eight feet high to compete against newer buildings that are nine feet high. Rent growth, today for class A and class B buildings is exactly double that of class C. So once again, class C has been the rent growth leader from 2014 when I started tracking it to 2021. Seven years, class C rent growth beat the crap out of class A and class B rent growth, beat the crap out of it. Today, the situation flipped, it reversed. Why? Well, the biggest reason is people want bigger spaces and class A offers bigger spaces. Class B offers bigger spaces than class C. People have higher incomes because COVID has increased the, the, the bank balances of Americans by $5.8 trillion, right? That's an astonishing once in a lifetime, you know, gift from the world government, not just the US government to its citizens, right? And it'll go away, but for the moment, there's people fighting over these buildings. And then a lot of class A, you know, company, a lot of class A new construction offers healthy homes, filtered air, filtered water, and many other benefits. That's the healthy homes phenomenon. It truly, I think it 10xed because of COVID. It was already there. What is that? And you mentioned briefly a healthy home, just filtering the air, filtering the water. What, what changes have to be made 
you know, and I don't, it doesn't seem that significant putting in a few air filters or water filters, but what, what is a healthy home? So on the one side, you're entirely correct. If you simply filter the water or filter the air in your apartment or your home, that's a healthy home, right? It's as simple as that. But what's happening is that these days they're tying it with technology. They're saying your home needs to be able to inform you when there's too much carbon dioxide, where the air quality is low, where the water quality is low. So they're tying it to technology and apps and smartphones. So it's becoming something that's filtering plus tech, right? And okay. you know, tied back to either an iPad that's next to the door or tied back to an app on your smartphone that's giving you an alert every time something's wrong with the home. So, but in the end, yes, it's a sexy way of saying I'm going to filter my air and water. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I'd, I'd like to pivot a little bit here to interest rates, inflation, and cap rates. And can you talk about the trends with all of those and, and where you think we're heading? Absolutely. So the Federal Reserve of the U.S. has raised interest rates nine times since 1961. So they've had nine interest rate hike cycles. The first thing that everyone should remember, if there's one thing you remember from this podcast, remember this, all nine of those interest rate hiking cycles were sharp up, sharp down, sharp up, sharp down, meaning they hike, 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 they get to a top. It's not a plateau of any kind. They get to a top where they've all, they've gut punched the U.S. economy. So imagine, you know, a big boxer, Mike Tyson, punching Jim. And Jim's like, oh my God. I mean, like this feels like death right now. And then a few minutes later, Jim's not going to feel that bad. But right now it feels like death. That's what the Fed is trying to do to the economy. Make it feel like death without it actually being death. So that the economy slows to the point where inflation dies. Right. The economy has to slow, but the Fed doesn't want to put it into a recession. So it has to back off immediately. So what the Fed really does is first it does the Mike Tyson punch and then immediately it starts to administer a salve there. So it makes you feel better. Right. So sharp up, sharp down all nine instances since 1961. So this concept of interest rates are going to be high for years is truly nonsensical because clearly people who say that have never looked at what has happened the last nine times in the last 61 years that the Fed has been doing this, right? There have been no plateaus. One could argue that 1982 was a plateau, but that was a very special situation with the oil crisis going on. So it was actually sharp up, down, then up again, then down. But even then the plateau at the top was only about nine months long, right? But every other case, sharp up, sharp down. So we're not going to see years and years and years of high interest rates. The U.S. economy, the world economy does not function well when 10-year treasuries are beyond 3.5. So obviously the Fed's job is not to keep us in crisis. It's to get us out of a crisis. We have an inflation crisis. So we think interest rates are going to go up. The Fed's going to raise by 0.5 you know, this month, then 0.5 again next month. And then they'll watch and wait to see how the world economy is doing before they continue to raise. So we, we think that the peak of interest rates are going to be at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. And then the Fed will start to drop rates. We're seeing problems with the world economy. Europe, by the way, is still at negative interest rates, right? Chinese are going back to negative interest rates because their economy is a total disaster right now with their shutdowns of major cities. Their, their economy is doing horribly. The Indians are confused. They don't quite know what to do. So they, 
outside of the US, there are very severe problems. We are the one economy that recovered fast. Every other economy hasn't recovered from COVID. So we can't just keep rising our interest rates because if we do that, our trade deficit will be a debacle. The Fed can't be completely out of tune with every other central bank in the world. So what they're hoping for is we're going to raise, 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 and everybody else will follow us up. What if they don't? Well, the Fed has to slow down because what we're doing is we're making the U.S. dollar so expensive. When we raise rates, U.S. dollar becomes more expensive. If we make the U.S. dollar so expensive, our exports are going to get crushed and put our economy into a recession. Eight times out of nine, those nine you know, hikes in, since 1961, eight times we ended up in a recession. One time, 1994, the Fed bought us in for a soft landing. So I'm going to say, given how extraordinarily quick they've had to raise rates this time, the chances that the Fed doesn't put us into a recession, very low. I'll say 30%, 40%. So there's a 60% chance of a recession. When does it happen? Does it happen this year? No, actually, if you look at when the Fed starts raising rates in the past, it takes a good year for the economy to get into a recession. So I'm thinking this time next year, the US economy might be in a recession. Most of these recessions are very soft. They're three months, six months. People might not even realize they're recessions. They're not like 2009, right? That was a depression. So this time it'll be a recession of vanilla US recession is six months long, probably Q1, Q2 next year. We get into a recession. And here's the good news for everyone that's listening in real estate. The moment the Fed declares a recession, what is the absolute first thing that they do? They cut interest rates, right? And they'll already be cutting before that point because they'll, they'll start to see the economy going downhill. So they go sharp up, sharp down. And the moment they declare a recession, then they cut interest rates. So we're gonna see an interest rate cut, I don't know how deep, sometime next year. So we have a chance at this point to refinance our buildings. You know, so we, we get hit by interest rates this year, bridge loans get hit, my, my, I have properties that got hit both on the value add side and new construction side. But this is not the end of the world. We are tied. The world is addicted to low interest rates. We are on a long-term cocaine drip to zero, right? And right now, interest rates are positive. And if you look at the history of interest rates in the last 30 years, all the trending is downward. There's no upward trending. There's downward trending. And all the economists that have said this will result in hyperinflation have been wrong and most of them have actually given up and said, because world growth is reducing, hyperinflation is less likely. So bottom line, I think interest rates go up. I think it affects real estate, it affects single family to a smaller extent than multifamily and I'll explain why. So in the short run, what happens with single family is when interest rates go up, people start using adjustable rate mortgages. They start using arms. So I don't expect single family prices as a whole around the US to fall. I expect them to go up by maybe four or 5% instead of last year's crazy, mad 18% growth, right? That's just madness that creates bubbles. I'm really glad to see that go away, right? So 4%, 5%, that's pretty normal. I mean, keep in mind that's still sub-inflation. Inflation is 8%. So if your home's price goes up 6%, technically your home has declined in value, right? But in dollar terms, it's going to go up five or six percent. And then, you know, the individual markets in the U.S. will decline. Right. So I'm thinking Boise might decline. There's a few other markets. Tacoma, Washington, I think was too expensive. So individual markets will go down. But overall, if you look at 400 markets in the U.S., still going up a little bit. Multifamily is different. 
if there is a single person that appears on this podcast and say multifamily prices haven't already gone down, that person is an unquestioned liar. Multifamily prices have already gone down. And they may not have gone down for this property in this market or that property in that market. But when Q2 numbers come in, and it usually takes a quarter because you know multifamily is in contract for three months or four months or five months, the short answer is Q2 prices will be lower than Q1 prices, but the real impact will be felt in Q3 because some of the multifamily impact can only be felt after the Fed raises rates. On the single family side, mortgage companies already adjust their rates before a Fed hike occurs. They do it preemptively. With multifamily, we're tied to LIBOR or SOFR, and LIBOR and SOFR haven't really changed yet. They're going to change in the coming few months. So the impact is going to be stronger in the second half of this year. So when people come and tell me multifamily has so much demand and we have millions of homes short, the short answer is you're completely wrong because banks can't lend to you anymore. If you wanted to buy a building for $45 million, I'm talking about one of my buildings. I was selling it for 45 million, okay? 10 offers, including people going $1 million hard on day one. This is a gorgeous class A property, 97% occupied. Everybody and their mother wanted to buy it, right? Highest mm -hmm. price, 38 million. Now, I, I only had an $18 million loan, so my investors were making 40% IRR, but I was trying to make them 60% IRR. So I backed out of it. And I walked away because I'm like, when rates go down next year, I'll be able to sell it for 50 million because my net operating income is screaming upwards because rents are, you know, I'm renewing everything at 10% higher. So my NOI is going upwards. Sure, I can't sell at the same cap rate I, I could have it back in January, but I'll wait for a year and a half. When interest rates are in the, in the mid fours, I'll put it up on sale for 50 million. So I walked away. But today that property is now worth 38 million from 45. I could have sold it in Q4 of last year. It was still in construction, so I couldn't have. But I would have definitely gotten 45 million for it. Today, I can get only 38. Why? Because no bank is willing to lend more than $30 million plus down payment for that property today. So when people say multifamily prices won't be affected, it's just a terrible lie. They are already affected. You know, some I'm expect, you know, depending on the market, between five and 15%. But the cool news is this the moment the Fed starts to talk about interest rates going downwards, even before they go downwards, the multifamily market adjusts again and cap rates drop. So we think it's a short one-year increase in cap rates, and they could come back to where they were earlier this year by the end of next year. Who knows? Depends on the rates. Right. And, and what's the relationship then between the interest rate and the cap rate on different asset classes? I think it's very similar across the board, because if you think about it, a class A property, you want to have 75% leverage, 25% down. A class C property, you want to have 75% leverage, 25% down. So banks are going to look at it the same way on whether it's a class A or a class B or a class C property. The ability for you to get a loan has, you know, a bigger loan has decreased because your overall cash flow is going down. You're paying more in your mortgage payment. So I think they're all affected equally. Banks typically tend to be a little more skittish with class A in a bad time and more skittish with class C in a good time. Currently, the US economy is doing brilliantly, right? Unemployment is under 4%. Salaries are increasing. 
So right now the banks probably want to, you know, go with more class A loans and class B loans. But that'll switch if, you know, if the economy starts to weaken and then they'll start looking at, you know, class C because, you know, those a lot of those class A people can move into class Bs and class Cs at that point. So what is the over like we, we talked about COVID, hybrid work, interest rates, healthy homes and how things are moving. Right. So what is it, a passive investor to do that has capital? Are you allocating that capital? Are you holding on to wait till next year? I mean, what? because I, I personally am just, I kind of just keep on going. And, you know, I look at things differently, maybe underwrite them a little bit more severely than I did a year or two ago. But what, what's the, what, what should people be doing right now, do you think? Okay, well, I'll, I'll let me split that between passive folks and, you know, active, because you mentioned yourself, you're not a passive investor. So I think the active investors, it makes sense for them to keep going just underwriting for the new reality. So the building you're buying for 30 million today might've been one that would have bought for 33 million in January, right? But you're now paying less, so you're, you're keeping that in mind. And keeping an eye on rent growth, because what's really bailing out multifamily at this point, what's making us such a strong asset class is our rent growth is stunning. April, crushing rent growth. You know, May, incredible rent growth. I mean, month after month, rent growth is incredible. So on the one side, Prices may drop because of cap rates going up. But on the other side, net operating income is going up. So you may not see a big decline in prices later in the year because your NOI is making up for that cap rate change. So I'm not saying multifamily prices are going to drop a great deal because they might drop and then they might plateau and then they might increase as rents increase, right? So at some point, that cap rate is going to stabilize at a higher level than it, it was in January. So January cap rates for multifamily were in the low fours. Now they might be somewhere in the high fours or even the low fives. So we'll, we'll see what happens in the next month or two. I don't know the, the exact numbers. So syndicators, don't change anything. Underwrite carefully, but don't be foolish enough and think that these high rates, these ultra high rates are going to last for years. There's no evidence in the past that they do, okay? You're not being data-driven when you assume the worst. And you were assuming the best when you were buying in Q4 last year or in January this year. You were assuming the best. So don't swing all the way from best to worst. Stay in the middle. It's still a great asset class. Now for you know, individual investors, it's a very difficult decision. There's no real evidence that home prices in the US are going to decline. So you're not going to get much of a delta there waiting for single family homes. I think that's going to be a very long wait. I do not advise that you do it. So all, I, I think it still makes sense for you to invest into syndications. It also makes sense for you to invest in new construction because anybody who's in new construction right now is in a great place because he doesn't have to deal with cap rates at all. It's new construction. They're still building it. So if it's if it delivers next late next year or in 2024, you kind of skip this interest rate hiking cycle. Remember, sharp up, sharp down, and you're on the down as well. So look at new construction projects, look at value add, but make sure that the syndicators are really adjusting their reality, right? And so you've got to find the ones in the middle, not the ones that are very bearish, not the ones that are very bullish. Both the ones that are very bearish and very bullish will make bad decisions at this point. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, okay, so we're we're about out of time here. But the uh, the last question I always ask is, if you're a podcast listener, what's a, what's a great podcast that you listen to? I like to listen to the Timothy Ferris podcast. Tim Ferris is 
I idolize him because he's always looking for greater efficiency. And so I've tried to model myself to be a mini Tim Ferriss. So if you don't know who he is, please check him out. He's absolutely incredible. Excellent. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And then the last thing to go in the show notes is if people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, it's really easy for me. I happen to be the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So N-E-A-L space B-A-W-A enter on Google. You'll see several hundred podcasts. You'll see my conference appearances where I talk about these kinds of things, you know, and then you'll see lots of different topics. I talk often about virtual assistants. I have a virtual army in the Philippines that helps me with everything that I do. I talk about lots of interesting topics. If you'd like to see my full-length webinars, they're all stored at multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. So that's the best place to start the journey. If you're interested in investing with us, still start that way because I think you should know our philosophy first. Perfect. I'll put all that in the show notes. And this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely connect with you again to get another one of these because this, this was great. I appreciate your time, Neil. All right. Thanks, Jim. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2, is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria, or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. Well, there was a lot of good stuff in there from Neil. So that was fun to have that conversation with him. Some of the things that really stood out to me is, you know, he's paying 50% tax bill on his on his income and and he was trying to look for ways to reduce that and he changed his mindset from building income to building wealth and now that, that's powerful right instead of worrying about building up your taxable income start worrying about building up your wealth and then you'll be able to get rid of or defer eliminate reduce uh, some of your tax and he also talked about, as, as many of our community are, highly paid employees, right? And the danger there is that he was always worried that he was going to be replaced by someone who could do the same job for less or for multiple people who could do the same job for less. So when you have that big W-2, not only do you have high taxes, you might have high stress because you could always be um, replaced. And I also liked how he talked about wealth is control of three things, your time, your health, and your money. And if you have control of those, then you are wealthy. And that, that that really hit home for me because it's not just about the money, right? You have to have wealth of time, meaning you have abundant time and you can the time the control of your time is yours. Same with your health. So I thought that was really powerful. Also, you know, I, I love the carbon neutral stuff, one tree plant, and I'm definitely gonna check that out and see if I can make myself carbon neutral and then 
uh, work work on my family. And you know, I know it's carbon neutral because you're planting these trees. You can also reduce in other ways, but this was just an interesting concept and an interesting way to do it. So that was super super neat to hear him talk about that. And he talked about some of the trends that COVID accelerated, but they also slowed down some trends as well. So that that's worth looking at. And then overvalued, right? He, he kept talking about overvalued and I, I wasn't exactly sure what he meant, but it turns out overvalued is just when the rent is more than 30% of your income, but it does not mean that a crash is coming. And I think that was the thing I took out most from what he said is just because it's overvalued doesn't mean it's a bubble. It might reduce or incomes could increase, like he said, which will probably happen. And that will take care of some of the valuation issues. He talked about build to rent, which I guess is all the all the craze now. There's a lot more and more companies are doing build to rent. And it's he said it's small properties, but you might, you know, a homeowner or renter would get their own space rather than be in an apartment. So that's a trend to look for. It's a lot of development deals there. And I've been shying away from development, but perhaps I should reconsider. And he talked about since 1961, all or maybe eight of nine rate hikes were sharp up, sharp down. And I think when we're in it, right, we're in it right now. And we're looking at these rate hikes coming and it just seems like interest rates are going to rise forever. And, you know, according to history, if history repeats, which it does not always, but that's just not going to be the case. We might be through this in six months or a year or at least in a a more stable place. And so we can't just panic. We got to look at the facts and make predictions based on things that we've seen before. And it's not always going to be exactly the same, but it's, it's likely that it will be similar. So that's good news there. Something to look forward to. And then I think one of the most impactful things he said, avoiding operators who are very bearish. So he is looking for stable outlooks, right? He's not anybody who's the the sky is falling, you know, you're going to avoid them or anybody who's like, oh, this is going to run up forever. You avoid them because they're going to make mistakes. If they're on either one of those ends, they're going to make mistakes. So I thought that was pretty cool to hear also. So I really enjoyed this conversation. He has 10 trends and we barely got through two of them. So I definitely will see if I can get Neil on again because he's got a whole bunch of information. He's a fascinating guy, and I really enjoyed the conversation. So that's it for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show was copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>